Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, RCMP have confirmed that their investigations into foreign interference have been going on for quite some time now. Would have been nice if they told us that, wouldn't it? The Ontario government has set aside about $22 billion in excess funds for what they call emergencies. A lot of questions about where that money really should be spent. And while it's not a done deal yet, the Ottawa Senators have a new owner, and it's somebody we know in Hamilton, Michael Landlar. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about government spending, especially here in the province of Ontario. Uh, according to the uh, province's Financial Accountability Office, Ontario's current health care spending will not be enough to meet future demands. Uh, they say that more than $20 billion in funding is needed for hospitals, long-term care homes, and, and, and other homes of home care and things of that nature. It's a pretty big number. Then comes the story that we hear that apparently, uh, like a squirrel preparing for winter, the Ford government has been squirreling away money. Uh, the Independent uh, Financial Accountability Office uh, released a long-term spending forecast right now and says that the government has $22.6 billion stored away that they're not spending. It's not the first time we've heard this sort of thing going on with the Ford government. So what is happening here? I want to bring uh, Mike Schreiner into the conversation. Mike is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, the MPP for Guelph. Uh, Mike, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be on. You know, we've got a, a number of stories here about partnerships. There was the daycare program that was announced. Ontario, of course, was the last one to sign on to that. Uh, healthcare spending that they just talked about in the budget. Uh, and there's supposed to be, you know, funding coming from the federal government, as you and I have talked about in the past. But, Mike, if we're not spending it, it's not doing anybody any good. What's going on there? Yeah, you know what? The fact that the Ford government, um, one, we have one report coming out saying major uh, spending shortfalls, especially in healthcare. And then a few months later, we get another report saying, oh, there's all this extra money. Uh, a lot of it primarily being driven by uh, inflationary increases in tax revenues. Uh, and the Ford government is just sitting there. Meanwhile, we have so many crises going on around the province. I mean, healthcare uh, being one of the most obvious ones. I mean, we've just had the, you know, Minden Hospital shut down. Last summer, we went through a whole series of emergency room closures. Uh, a lot of people in the healthcare system are predicting the same thing's going to happen this year. You have 28,000 young people on a, on a wait list to access mental health services, sometimes as long as waiting as long as two years. Uh, we have a climate emergency that we're facing. I mean, we just saw it in the air we breathe, but we're also seeing it in the um, deterioration of infrastructure. Uh, and according to the FAO, a $26 billion deficit just to keep our you know roads and sewers and water lines up to date to withstand the increasing severity and frequency of climate-related uh, extreme weather events, we should be investing to prevent the crisis in our healthcare system, to ensure that young people have access to mental health services, to ensure that our infrastructure can withstand uh, you know, the increasing stress it's under. And then I want to close by just saying people on Ontario Works are living on $731 a month. People on Ontario Disability Support, $1,200 a month. When the average rent in many cities now is over $2,000, it is cruel what this government is doing, forcing legislative poverty on people. And what an insult to those folks who are struggling to get by with disabilities, 
looking at a provincial government that's sitting on $22.6 billion. It's wrong. I know the people of Ontario are better than this, and we have to put pressure on this government to do the right thing. But Mike, not the first time, as I mentioned, not the first time that this has actually happened. You know, the last report that we got from this office uh, and the auditor, uh, frankly, made the same sort of report. Uh, the numbers might have been slightly different. Is they're getting money for some of these programs and they're simply putting it in the bank. I, I know I, I have we can only speculate what they think they want to do with it. They may just want to throw it in there to try to balance their budget. I, I don't know what their headspace is, but they keep saying, oh, it's allocated. We're just not spending it. Well, get it out the door. As you just mentioned, there's a long, long list of things that need to be done here and people that are suffering. And, and these guys are just kind of, you know, hoarding their money in the corner here and not spending it. I don't understand the, the mindset. Yeah, I don't either, Bill. The only thing I can figure out is is they want to go into the 2026 election with a whole bunch of gimmicks like they went into the last election. I mean, this is a government that, you know, um, you know, brought in the license plate gimmick, which, by the way, I'm the only MPP in the legislature to vote against it. You know, that cost us over $2 billion that could have been invested in education, healthcare, climate action, the housing affordability crisis, uh, and is costing us, you know, one one point two to one point five billion each and every year after that. So my fear is is they're going to go into the next election with this cash they're going to be sitting on, and we're going to see a whole bunch of other election gimmicks. Meanwhile, our public services that people rely on each and every day, that our hard earned tax dollars are there to pay for, like healthcare, like education, housing affordability, um, getting our infrastructure more resilient the impacts of the climate crisis, the government is failing to make those kinds of investments and the costs are only going to go up if they fail to make those investments. Well, the other side of this, and let's connect some dots here. Uh, you know, Mr. Lecce, the Minister of Education, of course, announced earlier this week that they're they're going to look relook at the, the compensation for people that work in daycare centers, uh, which is something every other jurisdiction in the country has already done. I mean, this, this is Stop me if you've heard this before, but you've got people that are working in the public service that are leaving because they're not making enough money, because the benefit packages are are insufficient, and because the hours are, are crummy. Uh, and it was happening with long-term care. It's happening with nursing. Now it's happening with child care facilities. I mean, is there not a, at least a moral responsibility, if not a physical responsibility, and a fiscal responsibility here, Mike, to, to make sure that the people that are in charge of looking after our frail and our elderly and our children are compensated properly? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you nailed it when you said it's not only a moral responsibility, it's a fiscal responsibility as as well. So, I mean, let's look at early childhood educators. Uh, other provinces have come in and said, you know, hey, uh, the floor is $25 an hour. Ontario hasn't done that. Uh, and I don't want to get in the middle of the negotiations. We'll, we'll let those folks negotiate uh, fair wages for themselves. But my gosh, if other provinces can have a floor of 25, but Ontario has a floor of 18. No wonder we have a shortage of ECEs, which means that people, young families are not going to get access to the $10 a day childcare that they were promised because there aren't going to be enough spaces for everyone, which is going to hurt our economy, especially at a time when most businesses are facing significant labor shortages, not to mention the lost income for those families and the communities they live in. Uh, let's look at poverty. Poverty costs $33 billion a year. And yet we're forcing people to live in legislated poverty. They are paying the cost of that each and every day. And 
Um, meanwhile, the rest of society is paying the cost of that. And some of that is additional pressure on our healthcare system, which, by the way, is facing a human resource crisis because of Bill 124 freezing the wages of nurses and other frontline healthcare providers. Uh, no wonder people are leaving the profession when you have a government that disrespects, underpays nurses and frontline healthcare workers and is now actually wasting our tax dollars appealing their decision after the legislation was ruled unconstitutional. Any smart government business would recognize that you have to pay your workers a fair wage in order to attract people to fulfill those positions. And yet this government is failing to do that and people are paying the price each and every day by long wait times in our emergency departments. In some cases, our emergency departments being closed altogether are being shut down over the weekends when people need it. It's just wrong, it's irresponsible, and it has negative fiscal implications for the province, not to mention how it's making everyday life more difficult for so many people. Mike, I just want to circle back for a second, just uh, so our listeners have a clear understanding. Uh, because you mentioned about uh, unexpected revenues. Uh, when interest rates go up like this uh, and inflation ravages it like it's doing right now, uh, this is not something they would like to talk about. The governments make more money from that. Uh, you know, the, the money from uh, the tax on gas, the tax on just about everything. The, your, your tax on all of those items is a, per, is a, a percentage of, of what you paid for it. So if you have to pay more for gas, more for groceries, more for this, that's more revenue for the government. So they've got all this money that they didn't think they were going to have this year. And they don't seem to have a plan for it. And I, I get it. And, and you and I have had this discussion in the past. I mean, you represent the Green Party. You know, uh, Doug Ford represents the Progressive Conservative Party. There are going to be some philosophical differences here. But let's at least try to get together and say, okay, let's have a plan. You know, the Liberals uh, years ago in the federal government, as you know, Mike, uh, they ran 11 years of surpluses. Uh, but they didn't just squirrel it away. They spent half of it on infrastructure for cities, and the other half went to pay the national debt, which governments tend to not want to even bother with. So it was a plan, and you may have agreed with it or disagreed with it, but they 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 had a plan for the money. Ford doesn't seem to have a plan here, or if he is, he's not telling anybody. Yeah, well, he certainly hasn't revealed it to his boss, which are the people of Ontario. Uh, you would think that at the very least they would be transparent about it. And Bill, you make a really good point, and, and I made this at the beginning, was that a, a lot of this unanticipated revenue is additional revenue because of primarily the inflationary, uh, the inflation that we're experiencing. But the frontline healthcare workers, the nurses, the teachers, the educational assistants, they're all facing huge inflationary pressures as well. Meanwhile, this government has capped their wages at 1%, which has been declared unconstitutional by the courts. And yet this government is spending our tax dollars appealing that. Uh, and they have a horrendous record when it comes to losing court cases. Um, and so it's like, why are you wasting our money appealing unconstitutional legislation when we have a health human resource crisis, particularly in our healthcare system? Let's pay people fair wages because when you're looking at you know, 8% inflation, a 1% wage increase is a 7% wage cut. And that's exactly what frontline healthcare workers have faced. 
And that's why we're seeing such a huge crisis in our healthcare system right now, which affects every person in this province who needs access to healthcare. So you know what? Let's have a plan to fix it. We have the financial resources to do it. But for whatever the reason, the government refuses to do it. And, and that's the frustration, I think, for an awful lot of people. I mean, there's one thing if a government can say, look, at the cupboard's bare. You, know, you saw the budget. We don't have any money left. They do. And, and we all know that they do. So there is something that they could be doing. You know, when the hospital, uh, you know, has to shut down and, and, you know, over the weekend and the emergency has to shut down. Shouldn't shouldn't a responsible government be stepping in saying and, and that shouldn't be happening here? We're going to give you some short term funding to try to get this over uh, for the sake of the people in that community. But I don't even hear that as a, as a suggestion that they don't seem to even be offering that kind of assistance. It's it's an emergency. And we'll look to governments for our help uh, when emergencies start happening. But this government just seems to say, no, we're you know, we're good. We're not going to do any of that stuff. Uh, it's disappointing, really, for people that are really uh, you know having a hard time of it. And, and like you said, uh, there are you know two kinds of people that are upset, taxpayers that are upset, people that don't like paying the extra tax, uh, and the people that just can't afford to. And and are now we just had the discussion on the show yesterday, Mike, about tent encampments and what we're going to do with them. And then they say, well, get those people jobs. A lot of those people work, but they, they just can't afford rent, so they're in a tent. Uh, you know, is that what we want to be in twenty twenty three? Yeah, exactly. And if you talk to uh, people who run food banks. They will tell you that the fastest growing number of people who are having to access uh, food banks to even be able to put food on the table, most of them are employed, um, you know, which and a lot of it is being driven by the housing affordability crisis. And you know what? It's the government will roll out the red carpet for their wealthy, well-connected uh, land speculators, uh, but yet they dither and delay when it comes to actually investing money in housing that people can actually afford when it comes to investing in our healthcare system so people can access healthcare when it comes to dealing with the repair backlog in our schools so our children you know have have a proper school to be educated in uh, the list goes on and on and so to me it's just misguided priorities this government prioritizes you know, wealthy, well-connected land speculators over average everyday people just trying to access basic services that their tax dollars have paid for. Well, it's a very frustrating circumstance. And, and I know we're heading into the summer break, so there's not a whole lot going to be happening at Queen's Park, but uh, we will be diligent and continue to talk, as I'm sure you will too. Mike, uh, as always, thank you for this today. Really appreciate your time. Hey, anytime, Bill. Take care. Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party and an MPP for uh, Guelph, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been covering uh, in great detail, of course, over the last number of months is, is foreign interference in Canadian politics, especially in Canadian elections. Uh, and we've heard some of the stories of Michael Chong, of course, the MP that uh, uh, apparently the Chinese had been targeting, the Chinese Communist Party had been targeting. Uh, has been on this program explaining his plight and the you know, the concern with he and his family and their safety. Well, uh, now we find out that uh, the RCMP tells us that there are more than 100 foreign interference investigations going on these days, uh, which was kind of an eye-opener to an awful lot of people who were still under the impression that this was a thing that was happening here and there, but not of any great concern, uh, which is what one report said on this whole thing. 
So who's talking to whom here and, and, and what kind of information are they getting or what kind of information are they withholding and stuff like this? Uh, let's uh, bring this on to our next guest and, and get some perspective on this. He is Michael Kempa, who is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Bill. We've seen reports, and, I, and you and I have talked about these in the past, about, well, is this isolated? Is this going on on a grand scale? Uh, was anybody aware that the RCMP was doing these in-depth investigations based on complaints? No, it was uh, very, uh, the RCMP typically does not inform the public or very often even the minister of public safety to whom they directly answer of ongoing investigations. The fact that they've done so this time around shows the tremendous pressure that they're under and the concern that this has raised in the public and amongst politicians. So it's probably good that they've indicated that there's some action underway, if for no other reason than to reassure people. Uh, and we're also learning a lot of the warts in this system. Uh, it is very poorly set up for dealing with the threat of foreign interference, intimidation, electoral interference, and so forth. And, and I agree, by the way. I mean, I, I think there's only been one blatant example where the RCMP announced an investigation. That was uh, way back in the 2005 election. There were some financial concerns about the, the Minister of uh, Finance at that time. And uh, Mr. The, Zaccarelli said, yeah, we're investigating it, uh, which was way off base. And I think that actually probably cost him his job in the long term. So they, they, they do what they do. But don't they, Michael, don't these people talk to each other, uh, e even up in Ottawa, about what's going on? I mean, because the impression we got, even from the initial report from David Johnston, was that, yes, this is important, but it's not widespread. Uh, and according to the RCMP, yeah, it is. So did anybody talk to anybody as, as they were preparing that information for the, the parliamentary committees? Well, this is where we start to get into, although... Uh, Mr. David Johnson being a very honorable Canadian and so forth, a number of his conclusions now in his interim report released back in May have already been contradicted in ongoing uh, parliamentary committee testimony, as we've been hearing. So just for example, whether or not information from CSIS has made its way into the uh, Ministry of Public Safety, it's clear that it has, even though it didn't make its way up apparently to the minister at the time, uh, Bill Blair, uh, ongoing intimidation issues around Michael Chong, uh, around other parliamentarians, the extent of it, this was not fully detailed in Mr. Johnson's report. And I don't think that that is his personal shortcoming. I think it was less information that made its way to his rapporteur efforts, as was subsequently revealed in these parliamentary committees. In other words, if we're going to look into this and have an inquiry, the same information, all of the information has to make its way into the hands of the person doing this work if we hope to fix anything. Did David Johnson which know which doors to knock on to try to get some of this information? Well, long or the short of it, I would say very few people, uh, including him, would know exactly where to go to knock mm -hmm. on the doors for information because as we're learning the system for intelligence gathering and translating intelligence into criminal evidence for police investigation is incredibly complicated here in Ottawa. There's all manner of reports, memorandums, notes, direct communications that are swirling around between ministers, deputy ministers in different ministries, the various security agencies, and it's not really clear who is reading what. 
So an outsider who doesn't have that background into the intelligence and security agency structure would really be at a disadvantage. Well, and, and again, which kind of underscores the concern. I think a lot of people had that uh, as as wonderful a man as uh, as David Johnson was, was he actually the one that, that had some sense of expertise as to where to go. But anyway, uh, that's was then and this is now. Mr. Johnson is now out of the picture. Uh, but the, the fact this is the RCMP that's doing this, Michael, talk to us about uh, what that entails. I mean, because CSIS, we're told, can investigate. CSIS can issue reports. Now, we don't know if the PMO uh, does with them or who reads them there. We don't know that. But when the RCMP is investigating, they do have the ability to lay criminal charges, don't they? Well, that's exactly it. The, the RCMP as a police agency investigates for the purposes of bringing matters before the criminal courts. And that's why they don't only work in intelligence, they work in evidence, which is a much more concrete form of information that meets that standard of being admitted into criminal proceedings. So a couple of the things they've got ongoing now have to do with investigating either actual or plots of intimidation against Michael Chong, uh, against other members of parliament, uh, where foreign actors were working on gathering information, putting together networks of intimidation to influence and perhaps even remove from office people who in parliament were putting forward uh, motions that offended the Chinese government, uh, such as Michael Chong's motion to declare uh, the violence against the Uyghur population in China as a genocide. This is obviously extremely offensive to the government of China. So there's intimidation. There's also ongoing investigations to do with electoral interference and fraud, and the RCMP works with Elections Canada on that. And this would have to do with things like either suppressing uh, the vote or uh, voter fraud in previous elections um, that, uh, that we have been hearing about. This is where we start to get into the question of whether Elections Canada and the RCMP are going to start getting involved in nominations campaigns as well. This is something that Mr. Johnson raised uh, back in May and others have been talking about. We're not sure, but I think that's an important direction to go as well. There's an interesting sidebar issue that I wanted you to, to comment on. We all recall, of course, the story about uh, a similar investigation in New York State and the FBI was involved in that, of course, and, and they made arrests about uh, foreign interference. A, a couple of people actually were arrested. But again, we were told that that's because it was the FBI. And, and then, you know, when when those of us that were questioning this were saying, well, is that going to happen here? No, 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 no. CSIS can't lay charges. And they're the ones that were doing all this, this recon, and they're the ones that issued the reports. Uh, that would have to be the RCMP. Now we're finding out the RCMP was, was actively pursuing these then too, Uh which tells me that, that, again, you know, does the left hand know what the right hand is doing when it comes to, to in gathering of intelligence and then, of course, evaluating and analyzing that intelligence? Not so much. And, you know, that's been a consistent message that we've learned. You go back to the Freedom Convoy, for yeah. example, all kinds of information and intelligence was making its way, for example, between the OPP and the Ottawa Police Service and the Windsor Police Service, uh, for that matter. And it wasn't clear on who was reading what and who had clarity on which reports were most important. This is very much a very similar, almost carbon copy set of issues where you've got all kinds of communications coming from CSIS that go to the RCMP, that go to uh, the Minister of Public Safety. And it's not always clear that everybody knows which are the most important reports that they should be reading. One of the big ones is something CSIS issues called issue management notes. 
when CSIS issues um, an IMN, an issue management note, they do so about two or three times a week on average. This is something that they think is serious enough that they want the minister to read it. So this is not one of their regular reports or communications. It's meant for the eyes of the minister. Now, Bill Blair has said he hasn't seen, he didn't see the issue management notes around these files. That tells me that someone in the chain didn't understand how important these particular forms of communication, IMNs, coming from CSIS are. When we're looking at this, and again, as you say, we have to, at some point, be cognizant of the fact that RCP is not going to lay everything out for us. That's not what people that are investigating potential crimes do. They, they need to keep their, their cards close to the chest. We get that. Uh, but with 100 investigations ongoing, uh, we know anyway uh, that at least now one uh, has led to a case where charges were laid. That was an individual back in 2022, a 35-year-old former Hydro-Quebec employee who was arrested and dar- charged for allegedly obtaining trade secrets for the Chinese government. Uh, so that has happened. Can we anticipate, though, Michael, uh, without crystal balling too much here, that there may well be other charges and other circumstances here? Yes, I think you can. I think the charges you can expect to see will be more along the lines of the example you just mentioned, where you've got people in Canada who are cooperating or giving information to foreign actors. You're very unlikely to see uh, charges against foreign actors themselves. Uh, I mean, they would just either rely on diplomatic immunity and quickly leave the country and, and so forth. But I think the fact, part of the reason the RCMP may even be communicating a lot of their information that they're conducting these investigations is simply by letting it be known that it's being done. They're hoping that some of the activity will stop. In other words, if they say, look, the heat's on this, some of the foreign interference and collaborators will say, well, now's not the time for me to get involved. And we saw examples of that, didn't we? I mean, when they were talking about a couple of the investigations, and I think the RCMP mentioned this uh, even during the parliamentary uh, committee hearings on this, that, uh, you know, some of these quote-unquote Chinese police stations that were set up, I think one of those in the Montreal area, uh, they said they simply parked their their, their, their vehicles, their cruisers, marked vehicles uh, in front of the place, which they said obviously slowed traffic down around there. People said, hey, they're watching us. I, I guess that can be a deterrent. But at the same time, you want to try to gather information. And I, I got to ask you, because this was such a big story uh, when it happened, and we, we still don't have answers to it. Uh, might part of that investigation include the uh, the two Chinese nationals who were working in that uh, that lab in Winnipeg during the, the, the heat of the, the pandemic and uh, just packed their briefcases up one day and took off and ended up back in Beijing? We don't even know what, what was in the briefcases, what they took. Uh, but clearly, you would think that's something that, that would attack the attention of the RCMP. It would. And that's where we we must remember that foreign interference is a very multi-pronged thing. Like it gets into the electoral process. It gets into intimidating elected officials. It also involves a great deal of espionage and attempting to steal information about either critical infrastructure, such as the hydro system or computer communication systems in Canada. It has to do with uh, pandemic preparedness and research into pandemics. It is very broad ranging. Imagine a police organization like the RCMP, which delivers all kinds of policing services across Canada from local community policing all the way up to these high level federal issues. Do they have the resources and the skill set on their team in Ottawa to cover this form of far reaching and, and very complex and, and varied foreign interference? I don't think any one police organization do it by itself. 
And and it puts things in perspective here, I think, doesn't it, Michael? I mean, we've talked about Michael Chong and 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 some other, of course, Jenny Kwan, who is the NDP MP, who apparently and Aaron O'Toole, uh, both all of whom, I guess, now we're we're told we're under some sort of uh, pressure from the Chinese uh, Communist Party in situations like this. But this industrial espionage uh, that's going on, uh, trade secrets of of you know a hydroelectric uh, company. I mean, you know, that's that information in the wrong hands. Uh, can be problematic in situations like that. It, it just seems as if the political element of this, uh, trying to influence elections, uh, however they try to do this, uh, might just be the tip of the iceberg here. Absolutely. I mean, we can even we mustn't forget also foreign interference into academic institutions where yeah. there's an interest in stealing the results of of cutting edge research. Uh, not so much in the social sciences. I think we'd all be safe if. Uh, a foreign government were to steal the secrets of the criminology department, the University of Ottawa. When we start getting into engineering and you get into uh, nuclear and computer research, this is information that's very valuable for foreign governments. And that's been happening uh, and, and right under the nose of the federal government. And and I understand how the Chinese government gets in there. You know, government grants get cut back from the, the federal and provincial governments. So the Chinese government says, well, we'll, we'll fund that research for you. Uh, here, here's a check. Uh, but we'll let, we want some of our people to come in to assist you in that. Well, you, you got to ask yourself just what are they in there for and what information are they bringing back to Beijing? Uh, but it's been going on at, at, in a lot of universities. And you're absolutely right, Michael, as you had mentioned to us a couple of months ago, they're targeting uh, those those elements and those disciplines in the universities, aren't they? There was a long-running program uh, along along those lines to get into university institutions, really any institution that can start leading away into soft power and influence over Canadian governmental policy. So, uh, you know, you, you read about issues to do with the West often assumed that if they were to engage China and welcome the Chinese government into all manner of partnerships, that one way or another, by interacting, we would be influencing China to move in the direction of Western norms and democratic norms. Uh, and we have proven to be extraordinarily gullible uh, with those, uh, I guess you might argue, good intentions, or maybe our own intentions to impose our will on the Chinese government in that there was never an intention on the part of the Chinese government to move their their system of government or their social values in the direction of open Western democracy and everything that goes with it. Uh, it's, uh, it sounds very clandestine, and, and if it sounds that way, it's probably because it is. Uh, an awful lot more to uncover on this in the weeks ahead, I guess, from the RCMP and so many others. And it's always great to get uh, your read on what's happening, Michael. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa, uh, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big story, uh, an ongoing story for quite some time right now, of course, is uh, the Ottawa Senators of the National Hockey League uh, are, uh, well, been looking for a new owner, of course, since the death of uh, Gene Melnick and the family uh, deciding to uh, to move the franchise, I mean, to another owner. It's going to stay in Ottawa. Don't, let's not jump to that. But the story yesterday, of course, is that Michael Andlar, uh, the owner of the, well, the, now the Brantford Bulldogs, uh, and longtime owner of that Bulldogs franchise here in Hamilton uh, is going to be the new owner. Now there's some uh, T's to cross on I's to dot and things of that nature, but it's it's all but a done deal. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Rick Zamperin to the program to talk about this. Rick, of course, is the host of Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML every weekday morning. Also CHML Sports Director. 
Uh, Rick, thanks for hopping in and staying up late. I know how early you get up to do the show today, uh, and every day for that matter. I heard your interview with our, our colleague, Scott Radley, who, of course, writes a column for the Hamilton Spectator as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, this, it's, there's almost a, a bittersweet feeling to this. I mean, we're so happy for, for Michael, but you have to wonder. I mean, he, he has been such a, a great owner and such a great as advocate and, and supporter of not just hockey, but of the Hamilton community, too. Uh, we don't want to lose that, do we? No, not at all. And this is, you know, I'm I'm so happy for a guy like Michael Anlauer, knowing that, you know, first and foremost, he is just 100% a hockey fan. He loves the yep. game. He used to play the game. He was a goalie and obviously didn't, wasn't talented enough to make the big time, but he has certainly hit the big time in terms of buying an NHL franchise. I guess if you can't play for one, you can certainly owe one. Buy one. <laughs> <laughs> if you have, you know, at least a billion dollars, and he's certainly in that stratosphere. So, yeah, really for uh, happy for the Anlauer family. But you, you, may, you make a, a, a great point, and, and Scott did in his article as well in terms of, you know, how Ann Lauer was treated, uh, has been treated by the city of Hamilton because he he has pumped in his own money into, uh, you know, uh, refurbishing and, and making First Ontario Centre a much more enjoyable place, first and foremost for his players and for the fans as well. Uh, you know, wanted to build an arena with his own money on the Hamilton Mountain. You know, council poo-pooed on that one, was really left in the dark. In terms of renovations that are happening or going to happen at First Ontario Centre here in downtown Hamilton. And all the while, every time he's made a suggestion or wanted to do something for the city, his toe toe has been stumped by, you know, bumping into something council related. So it is it's fantastic to see that he's uh, he's made it into the National Hockey League. I know he was a a part owner or minority owner in the Montreal Canadiens, which he's going to have to sell. But uh, he's buying his own franchise, which is very exciting. Uh, and we've come to know him over the years. I mean, as you mentioned, Michael was was one of many partners uh, that took over the Bulldogs AHL franchise uh, when the, the the franchise, the NHL fr- partnership, uh, kind of fell apart, and they wanted local ownership. and And people like Ron Foxcroft and and, and Chester Waxman and, and and others stepped up. and And there was this guy Michael Landlar, who apparently was in the transportation business as well. That's what we came to know. But essentially, he uh, as, as others you know came and Michael you know, took over the whole franchise. And we thought, well, that's great. And and he dumped a lot of his own money into into the hockey team, uh, a lot of money into a, 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 an arena that was falling apart and needed this, needed that. And, you know, the city council would, well, I'm not sure about that. And, you know, they, and they'd say, okay, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it up. I'll do it. And he did. Uh, and you're right. I mean, these guys, this, the city has dumped on him left, right, and center. And yet a guy with that kind of dedication uh, to winning, especially, uh, is is the sort of person you want on your side. Yet it's not somebody you want to continue to push away, and that seems to be what they did. Now, as you mentioned this morning, though, Rick, uh, he's not a bitter guy. I mean, he's not going to say, well, I'm going to get you guys. I'm gonna... that's, that's not Michael Andler at all. Right. But he deserved this. And and uh, it, he's, you know, my, my first thought was, boy, the NHL just, what a boon for them. You got one of the best people you could ever get as an owner now. Absolutely. And I think, you know, his work as an alternate governor and a minority owner with the Montreal Canadiens, I think, gave him a leg up in negotiations with the National Hockey League to, you know, to solidify this deal with the Melnick family, who's, you know, his his two daughters are still going to own a 10 percent stake in the franchise. And I think, you know, that's a whether it was a nice gesture or or they wanted to have part of the franchise still, I think it makes financial sense to do so for sure. But Michael runs an excellent ship. He's done so with the AHL Bulldogs, the OHL Bulldogs. And 
let's not forget, too, you know, Montreal, which basically is a stake in, uh, said back, I think it was 2015, that, hey, we're going to move the American Hockey League Bulldogs to St. John's. So, you know, you're going to be left kind of in the lurch. But, you know, and he could have just said, all right, you know, hockey in Hamilton is kind of dead. But he said, no, let's bring an OHL franchise to the city. And along came the Belleville, Bill, Belleville Bulls. And, you know, six, seven years later, they have two OHL championships. They built a, I think, model franchise in the Ontario Hockey League. So the NHL is getting an astute business person, a hockey fan, a guy who cares about the sport and wants to make it better. And I think Knowing what we know about Ottawa's um, roster, we know it's up and coming. A lot of good players like Tim Stutzel and the like. Uh, a new arena coming to Ottawa on LeBreton Flats in downtown as opposed to being in Canada far away from Ottawa. Uh, the the This franchise with Ann Lauer is trending in the right direction. Well, and you and I and, and many other people in this community, and, and Scott Riley is another one, I think, we've come to know Michael over the years. I mean, you know, because you have anecdotal conversations, and certainly you'll talk business with him in hockey. Uh, as you say, he is he is driven to win, and he does win. Uh, you know, he took over the AHL Bulldogs. They won a Calder Cup. Uh, he's, you know, as you say, two OH, OHA championships with the Bulldogs, which, by the way, and our listeners in London would know, that's not easy to do. I mean, you know, <laughs> junior A hockey, by definition, you lose some of your best players because they get past that age and mm-hmm. they've got to move on. Uh, he rebuilds because he's he's got that kind of an organization. But the other element of this, too, and it, it sounds trite, but I think it's it's got to be part of the conversation about Michael Ulrich. Uh, he's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's not a tyrant. I, we know people that have worked for him uh, over the years. They love the guy. They, they you know, walk over broken glass to, to try to help him. Uh, he's that sort of a guy. And and he's the sort of guy that, that you want in an organization like that. And uh, we're still, uh, here in Hamilton, we're still bitter about the fact that, of course, the Bulldogs have moved to Brantford. I mean, good on Brantford. But, I mean, you know. He is such an integral part. We haven't even talked about his involvement with the community, with the breakfast program and yeah. the Bulldogs Foundation, et cetera, like that. Uh, there's so much going on with Michael Landlar right now that, uh, that that's why I say it's kind of bittersweet. I'm so glad for him and so glad for the city of Ottawa. And I'm, I'm at the point, I'm going to make a declaration right now, Rick. You know, you've known me for a long time. I am still bitter that the Ottawa franchise went to Ottawa instead of Hamilton back in 1992. Mm-hmm, the NHL mm-hmm. screwed Hamilton around. I'm willing to let that go now that Michael's the owner. Okay? I'm, I'm moving on. Uh, I might even get a jersey. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but you won't wear it uh, when they're playing the Bruins. No, no. no. Let's, let's not get crazy here. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't blame <laughs> you. But one, one thing, too, I think that set Michael apart from the other bidders in this process is he is a hockey fan, and and the NHL uh, obviously realizes that he's going to be a very hands-on owner in a positive way. He's not going to be one of those guys, and he hasn't done it with the AHL team or the OHL OHL team that he has, and you know, sticking his nose in every nook and cranny of the franchise, and and being that uh, that dictator. He's a very hands-on guy, but also puts people in position to succeed from that management level, the coaching level, certainly the players as well. It's going to be very interesting to see how he does that on a pro hockey level. Uh, in, in the National Hockey League because he has that AHL experience, but how that relates to his ownership of the Hamilton slash Brantford Bulldogs. How hands-on is he going to be? Because he might be extremely busy, especially in the early days with this arena project in Ottawa with the Senators. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on to see how he juggles those two balls. But as you guys have been reporting, though, and, and you've covered this extensively on, on your morning show, Good Morning Hamilton, uh, the city of Brantford has stepped up in a big way. It's not like, oh, where are we going to do? I'll let's throw a, you know a dart at the board and the map and where we're going to go. Uh, they stepped up. The the city of Brantford has made a financial commitment. In other words, this is probably, from Michael Landlar's standpoint, the best possible scenario because 
he doesn't have to worry about Brantford. They're 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 being a very good partner. They're doing what they've promised to do uh, to make this franchise flourish, and that's the one less thing for him to worry about, which has got to be reassuring, I would think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Scott Radley brought this up on the show this morning. Is that you know Brantford has been so amazing for Ann Lauer and the franchise that it's really something that. You don't really have to worry about. I mean, they're they're building a new OHL-ready arena that could be ready in a couple of seasons, uh, maybe even before their three-plus three-year lease is up with Brantford. And, you know, knowing what he knows about what happens in Hamilton with a lot of the ups and downs at Council and how he's been treated, he might say, you know what, maybe Brantford is the place to keep the franchise while I'm running the Sens. I don't have any headaches in regards to what's happening in Brantford. Things are flowing smoothly. Now, yeah, it's early days. They haven't even played a game there yet, but so far, so good. From his standpoint, the less headaches for his junior enterprise, the better for the pro team. All right. I, I got a couple of seconds left here. We would be remiss if we didn't do a little crystal balling here. Uh, Michael Andlar is a winner. Like I say, his AHL team won a championship. His, uh, his junior A teams won two championships in a space of a couple of years. Uh, this is a, an Ottawa team that's got some, some talent. Uh, there's a lot of concern about, well, was it mismanaged? Were some bad you know, decisions? Um but they were in the Final Four just a couple of years ago, and in the in the NHL Final a number of years ago. Uh, this is a team that can be turned around pretty quickly, and and if anybody could do it, it's going to be Michael Landlar. I think so, and I, I think you know the, one of the interesting things about this is you know here's a team that has been relatively under the cap. They have you know enough cap space to you know get a couple of big name free agents if if Mr. Landlar wants to do that. But you know you look at the roster, and I, I mentioned one guy, you know Tim Stutzla. You know the captain Brady Kachuk is another guy who. You know, lifts people out of their seats. They get a couple more years out of Claude Giroux. Those big three right there can carry the franchise. You know, Thomas Shabbat on the back end, Jacob Chikrin they got in a trade from Arizona. The the goaltending might leave something to be desired because Cam Talbot is on the wrong side of 30. And do they re-sign him? Who's the next goalie? Uh, so while there's a lot of pluses, like any team, there are some things that they have to iron out. But really, the the foundation is, is excellent in Ottawa. When you look at the talent level that they have, the draft picks that they have coming up as well, uh, this should be an interesting few uh, couple of seasons in, in the new Ann Lauer era. <laughs> well, you as a Leaf fan and I as a Bruins fan, the last thing we want to see is another competitive Ottawa team. Like, <laughs> enough already, would you? Uh, because they were a pain in the butt to, to the Leafs and the Bruins for many, many years during some of those those, those fabulous Ottawa teams uh, that, like you say, challenged and, and played so well. And uh, I, I got a sense that this is going to happen again, which is good for the NHL. I mean, it's, it's really good. Because uh, clearly the Canadian teams we hear just don't seem that they seem to be allergic to playing in the final four when it comes to the Stanley Cup. Uh, so, you know, he may be the guy that can break that curse, too. Listen, I'll be fine with Michael Landlauer hoisting the Stanley Cup as owner of the Ottawa Senators, but only after the Leafs win it, please. Can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I can't make any promises on that, but it's, right. it's fascinating to see. And you made the point. I, I know we're tight on time here. Uh, about the celebrity aspect of this whole thing. You know, Snoop was interested in this, yeah. and Ryan Reynolds. Uh, but all of them, and there were some other celebrities involved, uh, they, they said, hey, this is what I want to do. But they always added the codicil, but I'm looking for partners. Uh, Michael Andelard didn't say that. I mean, he's, as you say, this is a cash deal. Uh, he's a very, very successful businessman and a guy who's driven to win. And I think that's going to offer some stability to that franchise. And, and you know, that that's another element, I think, that swung in his favor. 
Yeah, I don't want to speak for him, but I I would be I would be pl- I would be pleased if Michael Anlauer reached out to a guy like Ryan Reynolds over the weekend or Snoop Dogg, all three of them who were involved in separate deals, and say, "Hey, do you want like a one percent stake of the Senators, and you can be you know our team ambassadors? That would be phenomenal. You have acting, you have music in 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 two countries, global stars. Um, th- if he doesn't do it, there should be another NHL owner that reaches out to at least one of them to say, "Hey, I know you're interested in getting into the league. Join us and and become you know." that team ambassador. I, I think that's a win-win. Well, Ryan Reynolds, of course, has got his, his soccer team running, uh, and, yeah. and who, by the way, are doing quite well, too. I mean, it's amazing, you know, when you get guys like this that they, they are driven to win, and apparently Ryan Reynolds is like that, too. So you put the investment into it, and uh, I think it'd be a great idea. I mean, you know, he Ryan Reynolds took the time to actually attend some of the games and mingle with the fans. Uh, part ownership, yeah. I'm, I'm sure he'd just like to get a, a finger in the, in the pie here and, and be part of that. It'd be kind of neat. Well, there's no there's no way in heck that a lower division team in the UK, like his Wrexham team, would play Manchester United in the United States in an exhibition game unless Ryan Reynolds was involved. So if there's an NHL team who wants some of that action, I would call him today. Exactly. Uh, Rick, I know it's a, it's a busy day for you. Thanks for taking some time. And I guess this is a big story. And I, I think it's actually the beginning of an even bigger story for, for uh, not just for Michael Andlar, but certainly for the Ottawa franchise, too. Thanks so much for this. You got today. it. Yeah, big story and great story. Thanks, Bill. You betcha. Rick Zamperin, the host of uh, Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and, of course, CHML Sports Director. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.